Good morning. It's a bit of a long weekend. So let's start with a dance. Ooh, lovely. But now to business. Like fine wine to a Parisian or a steaming plate of spaghetti to the Italiano. The sod from the fire of an Irish hearth. Oh, we will not be having it. And this from Thornish the Lee of Radker. Yes, a blanket pan on the sale of turf might, he said, be a step too far. A pause he was calling for. On Thursday, the Green Party's Rogin Garvey went toe-to-toe with Clare. But it's farcical for people who are supposed to be in government together, negotiating these things and are supposed to come out with an agreed policy, saying different things within hours of each other. Uh, I think Leo Vecker's saying there's going to be a pause and it doesn't mean the regulation is going to be abolished anyway. Like, Michal and Eamon and Leo are dealing with so many different issues. It makes sense to me that Leo will want to put it on pause and get real clarity from the department, which I'm sure Eamon and Michal want as well. You know, these regulations come from the department officials and it all needs to be teased out properly so everybody's fully aware and understanding what exactly is going on here. And that's not a bad thing to do. And it's okay for Leo to put it on pause. It doesn't mean that the whole coalition government are falling apart because they have asked for something to be paused. It doesn't mean the regulations are being abandoned. This is a very serious issue for people. It's not just about heating your home. There's a lot of very serious issues. We have huge issues. We have Ukrainian war. We have cost, huge cost of living issues. There's a lot of serious issues and this is one part of that. And the, the, the lads have so much going on and dealing yeah, with crisis but, but, every day. But, but, but sorry, Roisin. You know, I think that it's do no you, harm in Leo Vacker saying Roisin, pause. if I may ask you a question. Uh, do mm-hmm. you not think that you, as a government representative, owe it to people who mm-hmm. rely on turf to heat their homes, that you owe it to them to work out what you're doing before start making pronouncements? Yes, I'm, we're trying to. I'm trying to work out what we're doing because I think at the end of the day, I do know that if you're burning turf on an open fire, you're doing yourself serious damage within your home, and we see it every day. And it's older people and vulnerable people are, are the ones that are suffering the most. They are afraid to go outside in the evenings and walk. This is a huge issue, and until we have regulations of some kind, be it this September or September after, I don't care when. But we this this is an this is an emergency situation. Well, later on the news at one, clarity from Green Party leader Eamon Ryan. For years, governments have fudged the issue, have paused, because it's hard, or maybe it's, you know, it carries political risk. But that then leaves 1,300 people a year dying prematurely. And I think there is broad agreement that we need to address that. Myself and Tanish and Tisha were talking on Monday night about this, and we agreed, OK, let's come back and really get the details right and how we regulate this so it's not, we're going to put your granny in prison for burning turf from down the road. But it is getting it right where we get air quality improved. Fundamental to our quality of life and our health. So not putting granny in prison for the Easter. Phew. And later on drive time, Thonish the Leveradker acknowledged that air quality was indeed a serious issue and said all of this could be worked out once they had that pesky detail. This was never going to be straightforward. Um, the devil is in the detail and, uh, you know, I certainly want to see that before I sign off on it because, you know, I, I was kind of saying earlier, um, my partner Matt's from Gisal, it's a small village in, in West Mayo, um, genuine rural Ireland, it's you know an hour west of Belmullet, uh, north, of, north of Westport and you know pretty much everyone there including his family, you live on a bog and they would cut the bog in the summer, it would 
be the fuel for the winter. Um, and if there's an old older person, an old man or old lady in the village who couldn't cut their own bog, um, you know, they might give that person uh, a couple yeah. of bags of turf, or maybe uh, maybe even sell it to a neighbour. Uh, uh, and and it that is, is sale and distribution. Say, so I want to know that that's the going to be okay. You know? The devil is in the, the detail, and I suppose. Leo Varadkar channeling his inner culture, albeit by association. And across the water, Boris Johnson lives to fight another day. But he does make UK history by becoming the very first serving Prime Minister to be penalised for breaking the law. Ye party Partygate. Here's Cormac with Peter Cardwell, former special advisor in the Johnson administration. Do you know when you're on the air, when you're broadcasting or in the media, Peter, you have to be extremely careful when you call somebody a liar or when you say they've broken the law. Uh, And I must say, I was taken aback one day when I was, I think it was uh, a Labour politician who simply said the Prime Minister is a liar and there was no Mm. repercussions at all. Now they can say it as often as they like. He's a lawbreaker. He's a liar. And will it have any effect, I wonder, coming into if there is to be a general election anytime soon? It hasn't so far. It didn't in 2019. Uh, Boris Johnson is a vote winner. I don't think he can have another victory like that. I think that's probably impossible. But he has got through his political life and his working life, even as a journalist, in a very, uh, you know, scraping through. Uh, He is a, a character unlike almost any other politician. And he lives to fight another day today. This is a crisis, definitely. But my prediction is, and I could be totally wrong, mm. that he will survive. Wow. So liars and lawbreakers can succeed in politics to the highest office in the land in, in the UK. Uh, anyway, And on Morning Ireland, this from Mary to John Rental, chief political correspondent of the London Independent. He's jammy, isn't he? He's a lucky general. <laughs> he certainly is. I mean, he came very close, I think, to being ousted in January. Um, when Sue Gray, the civil servant, was investigating these uh, lockdown gatherings uh, and her report uh, was widely assumed to be extremely critical, uh, but it was never published in full because the police decided to investigate and uh, that bought him time. I mean, you know, you could say it ought to be more serious for him, but I mean, since since the police started to investigate, a lot of other things have happened. Uh, you know, war in Ukraine and uh, Rishi Sunak's reputation taking a tumble. Just a little bit of politics as usual. You'd almost welcome it. And guess who's popping into Claire Burns' inbox? Every morning I wake up to an email from Donald Trump asking me for money during his... <laughs> me too, and his son. <laughs> during his campaign, I signed up just to see what he was at and I keep forgetting to cancel it. Now, I've had the invitations to join this Truth Social, but it seems even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to get on there. Is that right? Oh, I think you could, Claire. I think you could. I think this big waiting list of millions of people want to get on, but only you are special enough, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it's worth waiting for. I was able to get on in seconds. Ah. Uh, I believe, <laughs> I believe, and I don't think he likes me any more than you. So, so, so the waiting list of one and a half million people—that is fake news, right? Uh, to use that term, I we all think like so that much. Might be a little bit of fake news, along with about ninety-nine point nine percent of what's actually on Truth Social. For that is the name of the new social media platform from the Donald. And US correspondent with the Business Post, Marion McKeown, had signed up. It, it was launched on February 21st, President's Day. It, it was briefly at the top of the most downloaded apps on, on iPhones. Uh, it's now number, I think, 473 or whatever. Basically, it went off a cliff after its first week. Like so many things, Trump uh, arrived with a bang and went out with a very, very fast whipper. So it's it's still there, but 
barely there. And I have been researching it for you, Claire, so that you don't have to. <laughs> and indeed, the listeners don't have to. And I can just say, if you got a, a classroom full of 10-year-old boys with very low IQs and an obsession with blonde, busty women, and, uh, you know, that, 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 that would probably cover... They'll all be social. going on it now that you've said that. I'm just I'm just reading the blurb here when you when you have a look at uh, what it is on the App Store. Truth Social is America's big tent social media platform that encourages an open, free and honest global conversation without discriminating against political ideology. Sounds impressive. But what's actually on the site? So it's identical to Twitter, except for A, there's nobody on it. Uh, B, that you don't tweet things, you truth them. So you post a truth and then if you retweet it, it's a retruth. So everything is a truth. So when you sign up, it says, use any name you want. Have fun with it. Uh, I, actually, I'll give you a rundown of a few cat names. There's cute animals doing stuff, bizarre news, idiots in cars, paranormal, uh, American greatness, freedom convoy, fake Hunter Biden, Nancy Pelosi is drunk, or, or worse to that effect, and hot chicks golfing, which which seems to be the, it's a lot of blonde women in very short dresses with big cleavages wearing pink stilettos while they golf. Okay. Hold the front page. But how do we teach children about news? How much should they see? And how are they getting their information? All questions tackled in a new book by Nick Sheridan. And he joined Oliver. And as a newsman, Nick had started early. The Weekly Font, it was called, which was published maybe once every couple of months, but we called it The Weekly Font nonetheless, and we had a readership, I'd say, maybe of about 10, uh, including some stuffed animals, I think, that I, that I had in my, in my bedroom <laughs> okay. at the time. And I would basically just print off um, little kind of news stories and, and, and little kind of bits and bobs like that, and then staple it all together and deliver it around my uh, my local neighbourhood in, in, in Kilmuckridge. So yeah, that was, um, it, it didn't really work out, really. I wasn't a, there was no um, William Randolph Hearst um, kind of uh, aspirations at that stage. You didn't go mad um, with the power of producing Well, no, but there was no power to go mad with, uh, Oliver, <laughs> quite, 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 quite frankly. But. Now, his book is called Breaking News. How to tell what's real from what's rubbish. And for him, putting bad news in context was particularly helpful this idea of maybe trying to shield kids from, from, from bad news in particular, it can I would always just encourage to be as you know appropriate to the age to try and just be as truthful as possible with yeah. with, with kids and, and uh, because you know especially these days the, the news will reach kids one, one way or another. So it's it's so important just to to take a step back and to and to, to just approach it and be very honest. And I remember when the, when those students um, died in, in in the balcony collapse, it was very much a case of of you know we we weren't trying to do anything you know uh, we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel with it. We just we very plain, simple, concise language, but also reassuring the the young people and the kids who are watching that you know first and foremost you are safe and these things are in the I news see, because yeah. they're very rare. They don't happen very often. Um, and 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 just trying to. To, to go from there but uh, those were very very hard days in, in the newsroom for sure and Covid was, was another thing that we simply couldn't shy away from because it, it, it all of a sudden kids were being told you couldn't go to you know hurling in, on, on a Saturday morning and you couldn't hug your, 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 your granny and your granddad and mm. it was it was a really urgent kind of public service that uh, that, that we need to provide in, in, in those more difficult times certainly. And call it spin, propaganda, fake news or downright lies, but it goes right, right back. And while you might think the title of Alexander the Great would be enough, oh no. 
changed his name from Alexander to Great to Alexander, son of Zeus. Yes. So he was sort of saying, I am actually, in fact, Zeus's son. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's just constant. The, the branding worked. The branding worked in fairness to it. And, Until and, and Colin Farrell played him in a blonde wig. <laughs> Angelina Jolie, I remember that, yeah. Um, yeah, and look, at the, there are so many examples throughout history of people realising that, the, that, that the, perhaps one of the most important weapons that they had was information, misinformation, disinformation, uh, and, and using that to either to big themselves up uh, or to tear their opponents down. And he gave us this rather fantastic example from Professor Peter Bull as to how politicians duck and dive answering a straight question. So in the book, what we do is we just set up a wee scenario uh, where a reporter is asking a farmer uh, who came first, the the chicken or the egg. And the farmer ignores the question, just saying, (laughs) oh, I I love eggs. I love eggs. Absolutely. Eggs are great. Fantastic. The reporter, again, you know, ask him which comes first. And the the farmer recognises the question, but doesn't answer it. So he would say, do you know what, Oliver, that's a really, really good question. And I love (laughs) eggs, especially scrambled eggs. He can avoid responsibility, so um, the politician can say, look, 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 I'm not going to comment. It would be inappropriate for me to comment on a private matter between the, the, the chicken and the egg. And then the, the report would ask again, and the farmer might, might attack the question and saying, you know, the, you, it, you know, your question shouldn't be this. Your question should be, it's not about <laughs> which came first. It's about what, what, what tastes better. Um, or, or, or saying, the, you know, uh, the, he, he might appeal to nationalism and say, if it wasn't for all the ducks that were coming over here, then uh, everything would be fine between chicken and eggs. Oh, that is scary in its accuracy. Nick Sheridan with Oliver on Tuesday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Yesterday, vigils were held around the country to remember and pay tribute to Aidan Moffat and Michael Snee, who were killed in Sligo. And there was a lot in the news this week about homophobia. And while we might all think that as a country and as a society, we have come to appreciate and cherish all of our citizens equally, turns out that might not be the case. In the early hours of Sunday morning, an attack on Evan Summers on Dame Street in Dublin. He joined Katie on Wednesday's Live Line. This guy walked up past my cousin and her boyfriend who were directly behind me Mm -hmm. and he just kind of came straight up to me. Um, he just kind of started getting in my face and, um, <clears throat> you know, calling me names. Uh, I think one of the names he called me um, was Baldy, uh, I won't say the word, uh, C-word, um, because, you know, I don't have the best hair. Um, he said, Baldy, see you next Tuesday. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, you know, and other things. Uh, obviously, he called me, like, faggot, um, and uh, eventually, which led to him, um, punched me in the face. And when he was... I would say when he was like actually punching me in the face, you know, with a raised fist, that's when he kind of called me uh, faggot, and that's when he struck me uh, in my kind of right eye socket area, uh, and then that caused me to, you know, get knocked out where I kind of would have fallen back, and obviously some of that is a bit of a blur to me because once he hit me, that's kind of I don't remember certain bits after that. The next thing I remember is kind of waking up, my leg out stretched, you know, and not being able to move my left foot. My left kind of foot was flopped to one side it didn't look right at all uh, like clearly I had you know damaged something badly mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's kind of what I remember from it and then I remember obviously uh, you know the guards come in and I remember getting in the ambulance I do remember all that As well as a fractured eye socket he has a very badly broken ankle he's already had one surgery and will be getting another 
and it was simply the fact that he was being himself that led to this attack. Why do you think, you, of all the people on the street that night, that, that they, you know, went for you? That they, Have you any sense of... Yeah, I well, I think, first of all, he I'm assuming he would have seen me, either the George or the George area, you know, um, walking, then walking down the street with my cousin and her uh, partner. Um, and I um, don't know how else to put it. I'm clearly gay. Um, when I've had a few drinks, I think it's even more obvious. Um I could be, you know, it's the way I begin to walk and talk and it's just, I'm. it's kind of obvious to anyone basically that, yeah. you know, I'm probably, most likely. Yeah, I see, uh, I see how you think you're Taylor Swift with a few jars on board, <laughs> like, yeah, many, exactly. like many of us. Yeah, exactly. I could be walking down the street singing, you know, Taylor Swift's new album. I could be like, you know, with my cousin, we could be singing Britney Spears and, you know, you just don't know with so, me, especially yeah. after being the George and hearing that kind of thing on like that music. But Just, so yeah. you're out and proud. Like you, 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 you're not afraid to to you know be who you are. And that's what we tell people, of course, never be afraid to be who you are. But have you ever experienced you know homophobic uh, attack? Not attacks as such, but any sort of homophobic uh, response to yourself up to yeah, now? To, to be honest, I don't think I really know any kind of you know gay or trans or or bisexual person who hasn't gotten a comment here or there. Um, definitely been called, you know, like faggot before. Um, God knows what else I've been called. Um, but it's just one of those things. It's almost become so normalised that it's accepted. Um, you know, to me, like, I don't know how in 2022 it's kind of still like this. It's almost like taking, you know, a leap forward and, you know, five leaps back. That's how I feel today after he, after my attack. And Evan talked about, in certain situations, changing his behaviour, almost instinctively. I just wonder, like, were were there ever things you you stopped yourself from doing before or would would have, you know, thought twice about doing? Um, Um, Yeah, so if I was in, you know, a bar that maybe, maybe in, like, say, if I was in a bar... um, that was more a kind of a straight crowd, maybe possibly older or even mixed. Like, it doesn't really matter. Um, I would definitely not act how I would if I was somewhere like, you know, the George or I suppose Panty Bar. Um, you know, I just, you know, I think that's the good thing about like these LGBTQ spaces. Like, your walls can come down a little bit. You know, you're not thinking how am I dancing? Am I, you know, acting too gay? Am I going to, you know, am I going to get, you know, attention God, that I don't want? That is so sad. And I know, and he plays rugby for Emerald Warriors. But this now might not be possible. There is a possibility that kind of I won't be able to do the things I used to do, you know, play my rugby. And, you know, there is a chance I'll have to just kind of take a step back from, you know, I suppose a lot of things that would be normal in my everyday life because of, you know, some of the injuries. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do want to take this moment to say, like, I'm actually really grateful. And, like, for so many things, I'm grateful... You know, for my cousin Casey and her boyfriend who were there, you know, mm-hmm. kind of who stayed with me. I'm grateful for the people who came over to help that night. You just don't know how these things will turn out. You don't know if someone's going to have a knife. Like, there's just been such a big list. And the fact that I'm sitting here kind of talking to you now, it's just, it, it, it's a big thing, you know, to me. Because, you know, anything could happen to me. So I'm Gosh. really happy that I'm here. Fair play to you, Evan. You were actually counting your blessings uh, mm. there. Um, Again, that's a mark of the kind of man you are. Uh, That is extraordinary. Evan Summers with Katie.
And while you might hope this is an isolated incident, texts into Oliver painted a different picture. Here's just one. Oliver, I've been beaten up at Christchurch in Dublin. My partner was hit on a side street off Camden Street. On Pride, in a Dublin city centre pub, my partner was hit. The excuse was he had a Pride flag. And anyway, the man was older. The management in the pub said they were too busy to deal with it on the day. A woman stopped the guardie and reported it. It was only when they started to get negative feedback online that they took it seriously. I've never stepped inside the pub ever since. The point here is there's an element of acceptability about abuse. The victim is made to have to fight, to go to the Garda station, be interviewed and no feedback at the end of the day. I'm not even sure that the abuser was ever sanctioned. I'm leaving my name blank for obvious reasons. And Oliver himself told us this story. I was mentioned that I was uh, often afraid continue to be afraid to hold my own partner's hand uh, in public and he actually reminded me that something that just completely left my mind in lockdown we were wandering through Dunleary um, outside some very middle class areas of Dunleary and it was a bunch of lads who went by and kind of made a comment you know they had kind of spotted us even without holding hands that we were a couple and it was like none of that around here now lads broad daylight you know, that's for town or something was the comment. But we're, they were kind of gone by the time we sort of dawned on us and it makes you feel uneasy. And a lot of people are feeling that way at the moment. And on the same programme, illustrator Connor Merriman talked about coming out and how, for him, it was a very traumatic experience. I came out when I was 15 um, as gay and I did that kind of because I was forced to. I was being severely bullied in school, in secondary school. I missed two weeks of it. I went on the Mitch because I couldn't handle it. That's how bad it was. I just, wow. it was very, very heavy. And you were a school nerd, weren't you? So going on the, on the Mitch. Oh, that was unheard of. I would never have done anything like it, you know. And it was, that's how bad it was that I just couldn't face it, you know. And it was the type of things where, you know, every slur you could think of, um, we're on air, so I'm not going to say them. Yeah. But um, you can imagine it and that's what was said. You know, I was being taunted to and from school. I was, things were whispered to me walking down the corridors. You know, I, I got spat at in school. I Spat at? Yeah, like it, the people made fake Facebook accounts to try and get unsolicited photographs of me. It was, it was very, it was early days yeah. social media and it yeah, was, it was a lot. because you're a young man. So I'm 27. Yeah, tw- you're only 27. So, you know, you're in the social media, but you got, you got it at every level. Every level apart from physical. Well, you were spat at. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose. I, I was never I was never beaten up, you know, yeah. but that doesn't Isn't take it amazing away. that you're, you're even qualifying the bullying as I know, horrific as it is. I know. know. Well, in fairness. Well, in fairness, and it's an awful thing that you kind of do go there, but at the same time, you got to find the positives. you got to find a little bit of hope in it, you know, yeah. that I wasn't as bad as it could have been. Ooh, and it's worth repeating, Connor is 27, so this is pretty recent. And again, he talked about the casual, cruel, everyday homophobia he encounters. There's little things, there's smaller things. Um, like two, two, three weeks ago, myself and my partner, my wonderful partner, um, we were holding hands walking down the road and a moving car threw water at us. Now, nothing was said to us, but we can make a guess that it was a homophobic attack. Yeah. And it's that type of stuff where it's just even holding hands, as you said earlier on. You know, you do kind of feel quite self-conscious about these things sometimes. You really do, though. You do. But it is important to stay holding hands. You know, I I find it is. Because, you know, visibility is our our biggest form of defence. That's true, actually, yeah. That's the thing I do forget. 
Like, but it's it's difficult in the moment. You know, fear is a horrible thing. <laughs> it is, you know, and it can stifle My partner is more kind of going for my hand. So yeah. I'm like, it's and it's idea. fine for a minute until mm. someone comes around the corner. And they could be the nicest people in the they world. They could be. But, if, if but they you, do stare. Yeah. I mean, and the <laughs> thing is, though, if you have had any type of trauma in your past, if you've ha- if you've been bullied, if you've been subject to any type of homophobia, you're going to have your guard up in public. You're going to mm. want to reserve yourself, you know, because of fear it happens again. But I do want to reiterate, I think it is important for us to you know stay visible and stay seen. Illustrator Connor Merriman with Oliver. And on Thursday's Liveline, Anthony phoned in and talked about his struggle growing up as a gay man and finally deciding to come out to his best friend. I had to tell somebody. I had no choice. Like, I was, I was, I was breaking up, like, personally, mentally, physically, because of it. And I had to just get it out there. So that was the, the starting point for me and accepting and embracing uh, who I was and who I am, and uh, and I must say, like now, it's, uh, I'm I'm so happy. I'm married, been with my partner twenty years, um, great friends, great family, five brothers, uh, absolutely support from from everywhere, and uh, I just thought that we'd come a lot further than I, you know. That we have, but then listening to these stories and reading the newspaper, it's just like how far have we really gone? You know, it's all great, the headlines and all the rest and pride, and that's brilliant, that's great, but you know, there's still an element of uh, of that feeling about the gay community, you know. I, it does strike me that we're having conversation, uh, we're having conversations over the last couple of days that honestly. I thought I'd never have again. I never yeah. thought I'd be talking about using the words guilt and shame around uh, yeah. around homosexuality. It just seems yeah. so 1980s. <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Like, obviously we've come so far in the last 20, 30 years. But uh, and this, this stuff comes up then and you're like, you know, have we really come as far as we like to think? We have. Definitely not. Definitely not. And across the radio all this week, a date that came up again and again was May 22nd, 2015. The day that the marriage equality referendum was held. A watershed moment, yes, but maybe not enough. Campaigner Colm O'Gorman joined Ray on Tuesday and among other things up for discussion, they talked about that day and its significance. In essence, we were being asked, what kind of republic are we? What kind of people are we? It was a question to all of us. So, you know, it was a real question that said to Ireland, do we believe in a republic of equals, of compassion, of support? Uh, Do we believe in that? And um, that was, for me, the really exciting question. And, And the fact that at the end of that referendum, you know, we had people dancing in the streets for days afterwards. I remember coming out of Dublin Castle at the end of the vo- at the end of the count after the declaration, and we'd been in there for hours at that stage. I think for about twelve or thirteen hours, and trying to head over to the Italian Quarter to get some food. And it took us two and a half hours to get there because we couldn't get through the crowds of people dancing in the street, and everybody wanted to hug. Yeah. Like I'd, I had complete strangers for months afterwards coming up to me in the street it's to an hug me and talk joy, about it. An outpouring of joy that wasn't about it wasn't simply about the fact that Paul and I were now married in the eyes of the law, or that like it wasn't just 
queer people who mm. were celebrating the passage of marriage equality. We all were because it was a liberation for us because it was an expression of who we are in a way that we'd never been given an opportunity to do before. And what a day that was. But change on our streets, in our pubs and in our schools might prove to be a slower process. Back to Liveline and last word on this to Paul, or rather drag queen, RuPaul Ryder. I suffered homophobia in school. I didn't in, in secondary school so much so that I had to leave in the middle of fifth year because the PTSD, the mental health, everything had just hit me so bad that I had to leave school and didn't get to finish my education. And that was due to bullying and also due to the school system, which could not which didn't know how to deal with this. After I left school, homophobia was on the streets, that you were being called a faggot, you were being called a queer, and I'm not afraid to use those words because people need to hear them. When the marriage referendum passed in 2015, I felt an overwhelming sense of just complete relief. I could actually get upset talking about it because it just felt normal to be different. It just felt normal to be gay, to celebrate. I could walk the streets in drag. I could walk the streets with my boyfriend, holding their hand. And that didn't change for me. I, I haven't, I can't say, sit here and say that I've, I've uh, experienced homophobia since 2015, because I actually haven't. But the fear of God is struck into me, my friends, my colleagues, and my community with what has happened I feel like I'm in a Netflix series. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm looking. And it is making, from what I can hear in the community, a lot of people nervous and a lot of people upset because I would travel, you know, to and from everywhere in a taxi and, you know, walk to get a taxi. I'm going to really have to plan out my map and my route, where I'm going, who I'm doing, who knows where, where I'm going to be at certain times, just over the course of the next couple of weeks, just until things can kind of settle down and we can really kind of find our way through this because people ask, why do we have gay pride? Why do the gays need a parade? This, this is the reason why. From Liveline, back in a bit. Welcome back. Tomorrow, chocolate. Some 34 million euros worth of eggs. And on yesterday's Morning Ireland, some junior egg hunters with Sinead Spain. I like my family. I like love. And I like Easter too. I like getting the eggs and the chocolate and I like spending time with my family going out. Yeah, I'm very excited. Because you get Easter eggs. And your chocolate taste. So it is, tastes like smarty eggs and chocolate eggs. The Easter Bunny puts them in hidden places. Some people need help to do it because it's so hard to find. Uh, the bunny puts it, it around like the big garden. There's a lot of hiding spaces. Who's the best at finding the eggs in your house? Me, definitely. <laughs> Are you better than your little brother? Yes, I'm a professional. Cute as a chocolate button from Morning Ireland. Now this week saw a massive result for the Republic of Ireland women's senior soccer team, a draw against Sweden. And given their ranking... That's incredible. Here's Damien O'Mara on Morning Ireland. To put the result into context, before last night, the Swedes had won all six of their matches in Group A. They'd scored 26 goals, conceding just one. It's actually the first time in 12 years that they have dropped points in a competitive fixture at home. 
So come on, the Irish women, all eyes now on that World Cup. But unfortunately, all of this was overshadowed by comments from the manager of the Northern Ireland women's team, Kenny Shields. Now that side had lost to England in a 5-0 defeat with four of those goals coming in the second half. Well, did they just get a little too emotional, didums? If you go through the patterns, when a team concedes a goal, they concede a second one within a very short period of time. Right through the whole lot, the whole spectrum of the women's game, because girls and women are more emotional than men, so they take a goal gun in, they, they don't take that very well. So if you watch, you go through the stats, which journalists love to do, going through stats, when we went 1-0 down, we killed the game. Tried to just slow it right down because to give them time to get that emotional imbalance out of their head. And, and that's, a, that's an issue we have, not just Northern Ireland, but all the countries have that problem. I shouldn't have told you that. I'm just going to pick my mouth up off the floor now yeah. after that. So you can understand the criticism and no doubt um, further analysis of those comments. Oh, you're not wrong there, Damien. All day long it went on. Mother of all that you hold. Um, so yeah, pick your jaw off the floor there. Um, uh, the reactions online are fairly swift. Was he being a bit emotional himself, Kenny Shields there? And um, and this is interesting because it's a couple of years ago, uh, Shields himself said he was giving up post-match interviews. Why? Because, and this is a quote, I've spoken with a doctor and you get emotionally imbalanced. He's talking about himself here. Uh, it's important I don't compromise my position as the manager. He was Morton Football Club at the time. And he said, there are people out there waiting for you to drop your guard. Well, he dropped the guard. He kicked it around the place, mashed it to bits. It's like amazing as well, because talking about emotional sports, I mean, like, how many of you out there have men in your lives who's just fans who are sitting on the sofa eating so many Pringles, whatever, they can't even hear the football match anymore. And their emotions and reaction to the results have ruined nights or holidays or weekends or whatever. It's bizarre, bizarre stuff. And later, reaction from Siobhan Roach, P-Mount United striker and RTE analyst. Have you ever heard that theory before that when a women's team concede a goal, there's then a cluster because like, I don't know what happens. Do we lose our heads and start crying? I I don't really know what it means (laughs) about, you know, we get too emotional about it. But have you ever heard anyone put forward that theory before? It does happen in football in general where you score that goal, maybe you switch off for a minute and the other team come and score. But I've I've never heard it compared to or being blamed on emotions in terms of particularly women because, as I said, it happens in the men's game as well. So for me, it was a strange thing for him to say. Um, again, and ironically, he's probably emotional after the game himself. And, yeah, I'm sure. and finally, and pithily, Katie. Pretty old-fashioned sexism, really. That's what it sounds like to me. And Kenny Shields has since apologised. But staying with the ladies, this woman's work, yes, a nod to Kate Bush, but also the title of an essay anthology by women writers on women musicians, edited by Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon and Sinead Gleeson. And on Arena, Sinead talked about the pioneering composer who'd inspired her own essay. But first, a point of pronunciation. Now, I've been calling it the Moog synthesizer for years, but I'm told that the, in fact, the correct pronunciation is the Moog synthesizer. Um, it, you're, it you're, is, you're not alone. I think a lot of people have been calling it Moog because of the double O, but it's, it's Moog, uh, named after Bob Moog, its creator. Stand and corrected. 
but a clip here of electronic composer Wendy Carlos, who was ahead of the curve. And uh, by hitting a note on the keyboard now, I'm connected up, so I'll hear that one sound. It's a very low sound. It's very bright. If I manually turn this knob, you'll listen to the sound get considerably duller. Here, it gets very dull down here. It's very bright here. Instead of doing this manually, I can do it automatically with what's called an envelope generator. It generates the envelope, the envelope being this type of motion that I'm shaping the tone with. So I'll do it this way. And that can be speeded up till we almost start hearing a plucked string. If we turn that around and make it uh, open up instead of closing, it does this, which was quite a surprise when I first heard it. Has almost a trumpet-like quality, or trombone quality in this range. Let's uh, show you how one of these sounds might be laid in to a piece. And as Sean noted, the work of Wendy Carlos was far-reaching and highly influential. It's easy to forget, you know, you hear the the clear um, genius and and ability of the woman when she speaks about, um, uh, when she speaks about the the Moog synthesizer there, Sinead. It's easy to forget that she composed for A Clockwork Orange, that she composed for The Shining, and that in fact she was, in, in terms of gender identity, she was very much a pioneer. Absolutely. I mean, she worked with Kubrick twice on Clockwork Orange and Shining. And I, you know, we're talking about the the early Moogs as well were non-touch sensitive keyboards. They were monophonic, meaning you could play one note at a time. So making anything on them was very tedious, very laborious. So you had to be very committed to it. And, and she completely was. And uh, part of me writing about the essays about how she, her degree was music and physics. So she was completely technical, but also musically brilliant. And the reason I kind of wanted to write about her is that she has largely disappeared from view. And part of the reason that she has disappeared is that you know she transitioned in 1972 very very early on and is I think a lot of the the focus on her life when she dealt with the press was on that part of her life which Mm. is I I wanted to talk about the music Um, I I think she would prefer that people did but unfortunately people didn't so as a result a lot of the music is out of print Um, if you if you post things on YouTube you get get takedown orders Um, she's become quite reclusive she's in her 80s now but is considered by so many people I know an influence on all sorts of people who made synthesized music you know from Depeche mode to Human League to, you know, even up to um, Oliver Arnolds or anybody. Ask any of those people about Wendy Carlos and they will they will riff yeah. extensively better. So very, very much again, I, I mean, there's lots of people I could have written about, Sean, but I, I wanted to pick somebody that people wouldn't necessarily know about. We've read a lot about yeah. Kate Bush and I, I just wanted it to be somebody who, who was um, a little bit more off the radar. From Arena. Derry Girls returned with a smash-bang wallop this week and Ray spoke to writer and creator Lisa McGee. Now, it's hardly a spoiler at this stage, but if you had figured the special guest star was Adrian, mother of God Dunbar, you would have been wrong. No, Balamina's finest turned up, thanks to another megastar. He was introduced to Derry Girls by who? He told us that Helen Mirren asked him to, um, or told him, sorry, that he should watch the show, that he would like it. So we were just like, oh my God, you know. (laughs) That's insane. But just how do you go about getting Liam Neeson signed up? 
Well, he, I, we had heard he was a, he was a fan, and then the producer um, of Jaguars, Brian Falconer, had worked with him on a film called Ordinary Love. So he kind of got in contact with him and said, you know, would you be interested in doing a cameo? And he said, yeah. And that was, it was sort of a straightforward as that, you know? That easy, and, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he was just, oh, he was, he was lovely, but I think everyone was, he has that, obviously, that real star presence and it was the only time on set you could have heard a pin drop on Derry Gears we're normally quite a noisy lively yeah. set but everybody was just like you know in total awe <laughs> and I believe you got you you spoke to him beforehand was that so you could tell him what way you wanted it to go or well we thought he asked for a call with me and the director Michael Lennox and we were petrified and he, Michael actually came around to my house so we could do it together like two kids <laughs> but um he, we thought it was because he had questions about the scene, but we realised now he was trying to put our our nerves at ease ah. a bit, you know, because he probably knows you working with him <laughs> to be a bit intimidating. So he was just, it was more about him introducing himself and yeah. um, making us relax. And I just thought that was a lovely touch as well. You know, he, he, he didn't have to do, he didn't have to do that really. And up until the programme went to air, this cameo had been top secret and one that had been kept which let's face it is quite remarkable I, I am fascinated um, just to go back to Liam Neeson I'm fascinated that you had that premiere last Thursday night and nobody divulged the identity of the special guest that's that's amazing In like in I the world we live I in know. Yeah. I know I can't believe it but I just, I just love Derry do you know what I mean like it's just great like um I think people in Derry take it very seriously as well. You know, well, it's what are you saying? They're good at keeping secrets up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. That's <laughs> Lisa McGee with Ray on Wednesday and on Thursday. We almost couldn't believe our ears. Sourdough! Ah! Why? Why, Ray? Why do you do it to yourself? Mm. Oh. oh. That's... Is it good? Yeah. You need to break up at that bread. On that note of near nostalgia, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And in case you didn't get the memo, yep, we're doing this. <laughs>